Thank you guys for coming on, a, on an afternoon. I know it is a sleepy time, um, but uh, I'm honored to see you. I look out on the audience and I see many people that I've met over the years and some dear friends. And some of you guys don't know who I am. So uh, my name is Richard Beck, and I am the chair um, of the psychology department at ACU. That's kind of really why I'm here, to kind of assess you all and your mental health and, and <laughs> pass that on to, to Mike Cope. Uh, but I'm a psychologist, um, but my undergraduate degree was in Christian ministry. And so, uh, so some of this, the stuff that I end, have ended up doing with my career is not that surprising. I'm trying to integrate psychology with uh, theology. And so you'll get a, a, a dose of that. But that's, that's who I am. I'm also uh, an elder, the Highland Church of Christ. I don't know how that happened, but that happened. And, um, and I've been enjoying that work, I'm serving that church as well. Uh, another thing I do, and I'll tell you about this in the um, a real passion of mine is like community ministry, typically outreach to the poor um, and inc the incarcerated. I lead a Bible study at a prison on Monday nights, and that's a real big part of my spiritual journey. I'm not going to talk a lot about that, but I will mention one story here at the, here at the beginning. So I've been trying to think, like they pitched this, this afternoon session as a, as a workshop, and I, I don't know what that is. Like, <laughs> like, what is a workshop? Like, is a lo really long class? I don't know what we're supposed to be. Like, we're gonna make things. I don't know what we're doing. So, uh, so I thought. So I thought. Well, I'll try to workshop. That sounds practical. And and so I was gonna try to be practical uh, about all of this. But I do. But since it is kind of long, I do. I haven't decided whether or not we're gonna take a break. Like, I haven't decided that. You know, do we need a break? Maybe. Maybe we do. Um, but I do feel like if you do fall asleep, that is like, okay. Because um, here's the thing. I teach statistics at 8 o'clock in the morning, right? And so if you fall asleep, that part of me that cared died a long time ago. Like, like, it's, it's, it died, like I'm just like, I'm just, like I, I realized that, that I was so offended all the time with my students. I just killed it. So I'm just dead inside for the most part. Like you fall asleep, I'll just keep talking, you know. And... Um, and if it's getting long in your back, because I'm getting old, my back has to, if you need to get up and walk around, you, you, you walk around. I don't think there's bathrooms in here, is there? Yeah. What's the quickest way to get to a bathroom? Just go right out there. If you need to go to the bathroom, feel free to get up and come and go. It's a kind of a long session. So um, we might, if it's a good halfway point, we might stop um, uh, for a little bit for a bathroom break, but if you're like, he's just going on and on, he's lost track of time, just get up and walk out, and, and may, maybe you'll come back. I hope you come back. Um, okay, so just what I'm just saying is take care of yourself. Okay, take care of yourself. You're not going to bother me at all I'm about that. So let me tell you my, I heard Randy last night about like, you know, Paul's qualifications, you know, for being in the ministry. And I was trying to think of like what qualifies me for a conversation about revitalizing faith in a faithless age. And so I was making a list of my qualifications. So a little bit of my personal history. I would say, if you know anything about my story, um, reading books or um, following my blog online, um, I would say from about 25 to 45, I was probably more of an agnostic than a Christian. Um, I still went to church, right? As far as the outward displays of Christianity, um, I, I was uh, still practicing. So I'd, I would have described my, my time during those two decades as kind of more of a practicing Christian, um, orthopraxy, right practice of the faith. I found Jesus about as compelling as any other figure in world history, 
the way of Jesus. I love, I grew up growing the Church of Christ, and I love church. Um, but if you ask me, like, is any of this true? I'm like, I don't know. I'm not sure. That's what I mean by being in an agnostic posture, right? I was kind of, in, in, I, I, I don't know if I could have said it was true. So for 20 years, I was in a, in a kind of doubting space. And so that's a bit of my personal testimony. But then, but then about five, ten years ago, I uh, started making a turn from kind of this disenchantment to enchantment, and I'll describe those terms here in a minute. The other thing that kind of qualifies me for this conversation is in 2007, I started a blog called Experimental Theology. And in the early days of that blog, for those of you guys that have been long-time readers, some of you guys have been long-time readers, but those who followed me in the beginning followed me because I was a part of a, a conversation that was going on around that time where, where people were doing this kind of uh, deconstructing of the faith. Does that, is that a word that makes sense to me, deconstructing? It's kind of like a buzzword now, but deconstructing is people kind of come out of conservative or fundamentalist or evangelical communities, and they start asking hard questions about um, uh, the existence of God, about the role of science and how you read scripture, about gender and sexuality, and there were a lot of blogs that popped. Remember when people read blogs? Um, I'm still like doing it. Yeah, it's funny. I still do it. And But people, it's all podcasts now. Um, but it was the golden age of blog. And I was one of the blogs that kind of popped up during that season, kind of writing for kind of these disenchanted, skeptical, doubting kind of Christians. And I actually owe a lot of whatever success I've had um, during that season to Rachel Held Evans, uh, the friendship I had with Rachel. Did anybody know Rachel Held Evans? So Rachel was very kind in um, uh, promoting my work and pointing people. Do you all remember on Sundays she used to have this thing called Sunday superlatives where she would kind of point people to the best of what was going on in the blogs, and she regularly pointed people my way. And that's probably how a lot of you guys found me. A lot of people found me through, through Rachel. But again, Rachel was doing a lot of her deconstructing. You can see it right there in the title of her books, right? Evolving in Monkey Town, which became Faith Unraveled, um, Searching for Sunday. And so, the, and, and there was a, a space there of that deconstruction. And I was a part of that conversation for quite some time. Um, but for reasons, as I'll talk about, felt like that deconstructing um, had, had some negative consequences. And many of you have seen that. People begin the process of deconstructing, start asking hard questions about scripture or the atonement or the problem of evil, and they keep unraveling the onion, and they kind of deconstruct themselves like right out the door, okay? And I was right there on the cusp of that and, and pulled back um, and began a process of reconstruction. And now you're seeing a lot of titles that are kind of doing that work, right? Realizing from lots of different authors. In my book, uh, Honey Magic Eels, is a part of those titles where um, kind of raising a hand and say, at some point... You can't deconstruct yourself to nothing. You have to invest in something. When do you make the turn? And so um, anyway, so my blog for 15 years has kind of been working in that space. And because of that, I've gotten over the years many, many my inbox filled with people who are struggling with faith. And I get emails asking for help. Uh, because of all of that, as an elder of the Highland Church, I've become like one of my pastoral calls apparently is to the doubters. Um, so if there's a child that is struggling with doubt, they're often sent my way for a cup of coffee. Um, if a spouse is struggling with doubt, they're often sent my way, like, why don't you go talk to Richard? 
And, and so I sit in my church with just a lot of the doubters, from the young um, to, the, to the old as well. The other thing that qualifies me is um, I raised two sons, and so I know what it feels like as a parent to try to raise children and get the faith to stick, um, and, and, the, and how children are different. Some of you guys have children that are, were very spiritually precocious. You, you did nothing. They just loved the spiritual world. They loved church. And then you had other children that um, were more disinterested, and they just... It didn't stick very well with them. And, and a lot of that is just, I'm a psychologist, a lot of that I think is just why, the way we're wired. That's not on you. We, we become, our, our spiritual antenna is different, and some are more sensitive than not. And I, had that, I, I experienced that raising my two sons, the differences uh, in them. And so I have, as a father, been, you know how you peer at your children with worried expressions, trying to figure out what, how do I lure them into, how do I hey, make an appeal, how do I get them interested in this, um, and so I had that experience, too, of raising my sons. Um, and so I can share some of that. And then finally, um, as a professor at ACU, um, I started a class a couple years ago called Psychology and Christianity. It's a completely made-up class. That, you know, I just made that up, you know, for me to just spend a semester um, saying some things to our students that I think they, they need to hear. Before they, I mean, it's really it's just an excuse for me to just preach and rant and and, 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 you know, try to persuade them. And it's like my chance. And I, I, it's the class where I feel like I want to put in front of them like a really, really compelling vision of Christianity um, before they go, right, before they walk out the, out the door in graduation. I want them to see something that they go like, okay, if that's what, if that's what this is, like I'm in. And, and, and it's not that I have the secret to any of that, okay? I don't. But, but it is a little bit of a laboratory where, um, I will um, try to, I'll try different things. And so I will share my, my experiments and where I think they listen to me. They don't always listen to me, but sometimes they do. And there's a moment as a teacher, and you all, if you've been teachers, you know, you know this, this feeling, um, and it's, it's when they stop taking notes. Like when I am saying something, because, well, I, I they're probably not even taking notes. I'm flattering myself. Okay, so they're, they're online, and they appear to be taking notes, okay? So that's what I always tell myself. It's like I'm sure they're writing down everything I'm saying. And, uh, and, and, and so, you know, you're getting partial attention because that's what we call it in psychology. It's not multitasking. It's called continuous partial attention. So I'm getting a bit of their attention. But there will be moments in that class um, where I'll be talking about faith or church, and, and they'll stop, and they'll look up with like a quizzical expression and go like, what's he saying? <laughs> and so I will share moments when I feel like I've caught their attention and try to pass that on. So my goal is to review a little bit of the book. Um, not everybody's read Hunting Magic Eels, but some of you have, so I don't want to just rehash the book because you, you like, like value add. So I'm going to try to add value to it. So, but because this is a workshop, what I would like to do is kind of walk through some of the ideas of the book, and, but repackage it to talk about faith um, and the, the appeal of the gospel in an increasingly secular post-Christian context. That said, a couple of clarifications. Is this a class about apologetics? And the answer is no, it's not. Because I'm not going to be talking about 
um, defending the faith, and I'm not going to be talking about answers or evidences or reason. In fact, if you've read Hunting Magic Eels, I think getting the cognitive wheel spinning could actually be pretty toxic. A lot, some people get kind of caught in logical puzzles in their head, and sometimes I think that move, you got to get them out of that mental rut. So it's not an apologetics. Is this a workshop on evangelism? It's not really that either, because I'm not going to be talking about strategies to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people. So what is this? Okay. In psychology, there's a theory called stages of change. Okay. And if you've heard of the theory of stage of change, there is this stage called pre-contemplation, and then after that is called contemplation. So let's say you have an addiction. It's usually named for addiction uh, conversations. Okay. And if you are in the pre-contemplation stage, and I come up to you and say, hey, like, like an intervention, you have a drinking problem. And you are like, I do not have a drinking problem. You drink as much as me. You know, you can get out of my face. That's pre-contemplation. <laughs> that's, as we would call, denial. Okay? That, that's, you're not even willing to entertain that you may have a problem. And so in theories of change, you've got to get somebody from pre-contemplation to contemplation to where they're actually kind of going like, okay, maybe I might be willing to listen to you about this. So I think what I'm talking about today is getting people from pre-contemplation to contemplation. William James, famous psychologist and, and philosopher, William James has a great idea, and I think it's, it's true, that, that um, he says ideas for us are either hot or cold. And by that, by that I mean if, if, if an idea for you is hot, if it's, it's a live option, like you, you, you could go there. It's a possibility. And some things are just dead and cold, okay? So, for example, like, I don't know, aliens. I'm just making that up, <laughs> right? You know, some of you guys are like, that's a live option. You're like, no way. That's a real thing. Like, I've seen the videos, okay? You know, and, and they're opening investigations in Congress. Like, you're, you're, like, leaning in, right? I'm not saying you're convinced, but you're in the contemplation stage, okay? You're willing to entertain it. Some of you guys are like, that's the stupidest thing. That's like a dead option for you. Just out of curiosity, how many of you, that's a dead option? Yeah, see? Okay, how many of you guys are like, no, it's kind of a thing, I think, right? Exactly, see? All right. So, that's what we're up to here. I'm going to, this is more about making the gospel a live option for us, okay? So, it's not really about, like, evangelism. It's not really about apologetics. It is, rather, this whole conversation is about taking people where Christianity is not really a live option, but getting to that, that, that part in their mind where they're willing to entertain it as a possibility, right? They, they, will, they will think about a conversation about God. They, they might entertain going to a church. So, so a, a technical way of describing this is I'm, what I'm trying to do is like increase the plausibility structures of the gospel appeal, right? So it's increasingly plausible, um, rather than just completely implausible, and that's a cold, dead choice in front of me. So does that make sense? Okay, so it's kind of like the pre, um, pre-tilling of the ground before we plant seeds, if that sense. So take, maybe that's what I could think about, is like taking the hard soil and maybe um, digging it up a little bit so seeds could be planted. So how do you go from hard soil to something that might be more receptive? So there. Oh, I was going to say something in my biography um, about why, how I got myself out of this, this hole um, of doubt and disenchantment. So here's, here's the story. It began 
Now, this is why I, reason I'm so passionate about prison ministry. It happened out in a prison. Um, and so, uh, again, I'm in this kind of really doubting, skeptical kind of place, and I'm looking for God. And, um, and you know, Jesus says in Matthew 25, if you visit the prisoner, you'll visit me. And so I said, well, okay, I'll go looking for him. And so I went out to the prison looking for not, you know, not as an evangelist, but really just to find God out here. And, and um, that has happened over and over. If you've heard, read my books or heard me speak before, I've told stories about how God shows up out of the prison. But this is, this is where my disenchantment and my doubt first got interrupted. So early, like, um, early, like, first month contemplating uh, uh, my Bible study, the content. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, like, what, what would it be like in prison? You know, it would be, be hard, be tough. So, you know, it would be great material out there, the lament psalms, right? I'll do a series on the lament psalms. Like, where are you, God? Where are you, Lord? You know, that should speak into the desolation of the prisoner. And, you know, how many of you guys read Walter Brueggemann's stuff and psalms of orientation and disorientation? So, oh, I'm going to give him a big dose of disorientation. So I go out there and I start talking about the lament psalms. You know, where are you, Lord, the God forsakenness, shaking our fists at the heavens. And I'm talking, man, I am like all in, you know. And, and uh, they're looking at me like, this guy is crazy. And they stop me and they go, we are aware <laughs> that prison is a difficult place. Like, you don't need to come in and remind us. That this is this is hard, and that, that we're you know we're, we're aware. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess that's true. You would be aware of that. Uh, so, well, what do you want me to do? <laughs> and they're like, well, you know, we could use a little a little hope. And I was like, wow, I don't know anything about that. Like I'm like I'm a skeptic. I don't hope. Like hope. I was like, okay, all right. Well, let me go. I'll see you next week, you know. <laughs> I'll come out here and and I'll do hope, you know. And 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 so um, and so it's funny to me how my I live in these two different worlds. Like like on a Sunday school class with my, you know, mainly, you know, kind of upper middle class and educated, you know, uh, Bible class, I'd be like, I could do the lament psalms, like, oh yes. Lament, lament. We have to lament. And then I go to the prison, and I sound like a holy roller, you know. I'm like, God is alive. And they're like, amen, you know. I can't say that at my church, but I can do it at the prison, you know. You don't want to get overly triumphalistic <laughs> with the church, you know. And, uh, and so it's funny to me how I'm out there. I'm like, I'm just like a revival. I'm like a tent revival preacher out there. And uh, and we spend a lot of time on, like, Ezekiel 37, the Valley of Dry Bones, you know, because that's what they need, right? Can these bones live again? Um, and they need to hear somebody to prophesy over the bones to say, you know, you can. Anyway, that, that was my turn. Like, my own disenchantment got checked, and I had to speak, start preaching hope. And um, that was a profoundly formative experience for me. So anyway, let me, let me hop into our conversation. Um, and I'm not going to get through all of this. So we'll see how it goes. Anyway, this is, this is what Luke mentioned this morning. You've seen this slide, and you've heard it trumpeted. But um, this is from Gallup. This was last year. Um, that for the first time in the United States history, uh, the majority of the population does not go to church um, anymore. 
And so this is, we are officially in a, uh, a post-Christian situation, right? What we do on a Sunday morning is the minority now, officially. And we don't see a lot of those trends backing up. And I think COVID accelerated a lot of these trends as well. Um, I was, I was uh, on a Zoom call with a bunch of pastors uh, recently, and I said, hey, everybody's a church planner now. Like, everybody's in a missionary context now. Um, the idea of kind of like build it may will come, like, like we're all planning churches now. And a lot of us have been able to kind of like not think about evangelism for a very long time. Well, now we do. And so this is what we're talking about here. It's like, so what does that maybe look like um, in, our, in our culture? The other thing I would say is that this is also affecting every believer. Um, again, I'm going to go fast, so I'm going to hit my points pretty quickly here. But one of the things that happened in the modern world is that because Christianity is no longer a kind of a cultural given or default, it has now become a decision or a choice. This is a point Charles Taylor makes in his big, his big book, A Secular Age, is that Christianity now is a choice that we make. And because it's a choice, it now is always uh, provisional, right? Because you can revisit that choice. That, like all choices, can be revisited. And because you can always revisit a choice, you can always come back to and go, like, do I believe this or going to church? Do I want to go? And we're always choosing the fact that we have to choose this thing means that it's always going to be located in the cognitive architecture of our minds in a place where it's right, uh, revisable or provisional um, and so inherently fragile. And that's for the faithful. Okay? So our problem isn't atheism. Our problem is choosing, okay? opting in. Because if we're always opting in, it's a very easy way to just opt out. And so I also want to talk to... The, the faithful and the pastors in the room is that the people sitting in the pews are always constantly opting in or opting out. Um, the, 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 right, this thing, this church thing is becoming hot or cold. Belief in the resurrection is becoming hot or cold. And so this isn't just about outsiders and evangelism. This is about a constant spiritual formation practice that has to help. We are always going to be rehabilitated until Christianity becomes the cultural default. And nobody's really choosing it. You're just born into it. And I don't see that happening in anybody's lifetime in this room. We're always going to be dealing with fragile faith from there. So I'm not just talking about outsiders. I'm also talking about how we can kind of help revitalize our own faith in a disenchanted age. So I'm using this phrase, enchantment to disenchantment. Um, Charles Taylor popularized it, but it was, goes back to a sociologist called Max Weber, and he just uses these terms to describe how 500 years ago the world was full of the supernatural and the miraculous. Okay? And not just the Christian enchantments of angels and demons and the belief in God um, and saints and wonder working and those kinds of things, but also the occult enchantments that surrounded um, Christianity has always been a part in accompanying Christianity down to the ages. Two an experience of disenchantment, increasing rates of agnosticism and atheism. My art, we're going to be mainly talking about disenchantment, but there's also, I want to be very clear for those of you guys who have encountered the literature on what's called the myth of disenchantment, that a lot of people are, t- are saying we're really not opting for hardcore atheism. Some people are, okay? But a lot of what's happening is a shift towards uh, more kind of what I'd call like neo-pagan enchantments. So you're still you're seeing increases in witchcraft. You're seeing increases in um, astrology, tarot, and it's all just dabbling. It can be hardcore, but it's a lot of dabbling and just mixing and matching all kinds of different enchantments. 
So, so I do want to talk about that today as well. That yes, we are talking about a disenchantment, but we're also talking about a shifting of enchantments. If you've read the book, I talk about this shifting enchantments in the, the, last, the last part of the book and talk about Christianity and paganism there uh, a little bit. And I'll, I'll mention a little bit about that today. So enchantment to disenchantment. Okay. Um, <clears throat> my temptation will be to waste a lot of time on this because I want to tell you all the things about these stories, but uh, I'm not. I want to try to be disciplined um, about all this. But I do want to talk a little bit about the map of how we got to disenchantment here because if we understand the, the proper diagnosis, the trends, then that allows us to come back here in the back end and kind of target these things a little bit more specifically. Does that make sense? So if you know the story, you can be a better clinician in diagnosing um, what I'm seeing in front of me, or even in your own, even in your own walk. So, um, and again, a lot of this is borrowed from people like Charles Taylor. Um, and so historical forces of disenchantment, the Protestant Reformation, the fact-value split, the inward turn into pagan um, re resurgence. Let me walk through these uh, briefly. So one of the things that <clears throat> Taylor describes in his book is this, what I call the mystical to moral shift. Um, I have behind me there the, uh, the host in the Catholic Eucharist because I think you can see the change most profoundly in kind of sacramental um, theology, right? So many of you probably know enough about Catholicism to know that what do they believe about the Eucharist? Yeah, it's the actual literal body and blood of Jesus Christ, called the, the doctrine of transubstantiation, right? And, and so what I, when I describe this to my students, it's like whenever you go to a Catholic Mass, you're witnessing a miracle. Like Jesus is physically, literally in the room, in the space, which is why they put it I think that's called a monstrance. I think that's what it's called. But that's why they'll, and that's why you could go to adoration chapels in Catholic churches and spaces where they will just have the host there, and it's there in the space for you to go into the room and be in the be in the physical presence of Christ, because that's what they believe. And if that sounds a little woo woo and spooky, it's a little woo woo and spooky. That's the point. The point is, it's a very enchanted way of thinking of what happens in the Eucharist, right? It's called in the theological circles the real presence of Christ. Now, we, we don't think that, right? Where is Jesus when we're doing, like, what do we have on our tables? Do this in memory of me. So we, they have real presence. We have memories, a 2,000-year-old memory of somebody who lived and died back then, but no real sense that he's in the space. And so that's, that's, that's just one example of this kind of distancing of a mystical enchanted, and still to this day, Right, Protestants, when they bump up into Catholicism, kind of thing, a little superstitious, right? Like you're praying to saints, you know, to find your lost car keys, you know, you're hanging your rosary um, or your St. Christopher medal in your car to prevent yourself from getting a wreck. Like it, seems, it can be pretty superstitious. Um, so I'm not, I'm not blaming the, I'm not trying to throw the Protestant critique of that under the bus, but I am saying that a shift occurred where we had a much more miraculous experience of, um, of uh, the faith to something that was more uh, moralistic. You see this in a couple different places, like, um, like how you can't read Harry Potter. <laughs> so sorry to bring that up. You know, um, I remember my, my, my son, we were going into his Christian, his Christian middle school. He's like, my friend Austin, he can't read Harry Potter. Why is that? 
And I was like, well, you know, I don't know, Leviticus, you know, which is, you know, you can't, you know, I mean, you can't really, you know. He's like, but he's allowed to read the Hunger Games. Like, those are, those are children killing each other in a tournament, you know. I was like, well, you know, Christians were uneven in our moral witness, you know. <laughs> like, you know, witchcraft, bad, you know, murdering children. That's okay. That's entertainment. That's legitimate entertainment, you know. You can read that. That's okay. Anyway, and so... I'm making a joke about Harry Potter because, you know, we all, if you grew up sort of a Christian, right, we all grew up with, like, what? What are things you had to avoid? Art, you know, you, had to, you, you burned your, your heavy metal records and you didn't listen to worldly music. You didn't smoke, didn't drink, you know, right? There's moral, and, and it's the puritanical influence that's, that runs through um, the holiness tradition and modesty and those kinds of things that we've dealt with in our churches. Or also... The, the domain of holiness got shifted from the monasteries to the domestic fear, and we call that the Protestant work ethic, right? So holiness is achieved in being a good spouse, right? being a good child, you know, cutting your lawn, paying your taxes, being shown to work up on time, right? There was a kind of a, a moral performance. And the reason why that has a disenchanting effect upon us is because a lot of people think, and, and there's a very interesting argument being made, that that's kind of where the social justice movement came from. Um, Alan um, uh, Bottom, in a book, describes the, the modern um, social justice movement as post-Protestantism. Okay? The, the, the kind of woke social justice movement is post-Protestant in the sense that um, the social gospel, you all remember the social gospel, right? Care for the poor, being, you know, be, right? all of those things. You know? And, and uh, well, if you just take the metaphysics out, what do you got? You, you, you have the social justice movement, right? It's the social gospel without, without the gospel. But I don't know if you've noticed, but the, mo- the, the current um, arena of where our young people are living is highly moralized. Like, that's the one thing you'll notice about young people. They move in a highly moralized climate, right? We're being a good person, being on the right side of history, and that means mainly being a social justice warrior and let me be clear, I am all in on that. Like, that is not a derogatory term in my book, right? But, but you can see how, in the book I describe it this way. When being a good person became the goal of the faith, right? When, we, when being a good person became the goal, the way I describe it is that pushed faith into a very fragile situation. There's no water in here, so nobody will be hurt, okay? But the minute you make being a good person the goal, you put the faith right there. Oops. Like right there. Because what's the next question that gets asked? Okay, if being a good person is the goal, am I good enough? The next question that gets asked is, do you need to believe in God? To be good. And that's the question that knocks it off. For all our young people, if you're, if you're asking me, like, what's your, you're, you're watching young people up close and personal, what is the biggest threat to the church? And I would say it's the, the moralization and the politicization of faith. Because when, when, right, when faith itself becomes the goal, then you kind of look around and kind of go like, well, I mean, um, in fact, I'll give you an example of this. You, you bump into it all the time. I, I was talking to, again, I counsel people in faith crises, and I was counseling a Bible major at ACU. 
and he was having a vocational crisis to go into the ministry. And why? Because he said to me, I have atheist friends in Austin who are better than most of the Christians that I know. Right? And so why put up with this homophobic, sexist, racist church? In fact, it's not that the church is irrelevant. It's actually worse. It makes you worse. You know, and so there's just really no impulse to stay if the moral performance of the social justice right, um, ethic is all there is to it. Just be a good person, right? And we see that everywhere. Just right, see it on the bumper stickers. Be a kind, be kind. Be a kind human being. That's the um, and it's in our advertising. Like I like, I call it in my home, my 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 children. I just feel bad for them. Anyway, I, want, I just feel bad for them because I'm always interpreting things. And so I call it moral advertising. And moral advertising is, you know, you're watching this commercial, and it's like somebody going to work in the morning, you know, and the, and the voice comes over like, you are the hero. And you're like, oh, I am the hero, you know, and you are the reason, you know, and you're, and you're taking care of an elderly parent, and you're seeing all these vignettes of you, like you, you, me being amazing, you know, and like you are awesome and a good person. And then there's like Corona. You're like, what? Like, like, why is Corona invested in my moral witness? You know? But Corona knows that the narcotic of our world is that you are and want to be a good person. And they know that is just like catnip for us. You're like, I am a good person. Thirsty too. <laughs> I don't know what, you know, whenever I think of anyway. So I'm going to go past that quote. Um, okay, here's another source um, of our, of our uh, problem. Okay, now this is a word that i got to define. So let me just, don't, don't panic, let me describe it, okay? Uh, teleology is the idea that we, we have goals, a telos or a goal. It comes from the Greek word end or goal, okay? So teleology is that we have a purpose and a goal. We were made for something. So if you don't like the word teleology, just think of purpose or, right, we are made for something, okay? So the second force of disenchantment was this, this moralization of the faith. But another part of that disenchanted us was um, the victory of, oh, you know, that's wrong. It should be the victory of causality over teleology. The victory of causality. So if you're taking notes, that's wrong. Um, Prior to, say, like the, the rise of modern science, we understood um, science teleologically, right? Things were created for certain purposes, right? Humans were put on earth for certain purposes. And so those purposes helped us guide and make sense of life. Like, why do rabbits do what rabbits do? Because that's what rabbits are for, okay? Um, but then, and so teleology looked forward to some end or goal that we're aiming towards, um, some purpose that we're here for. Um, but causality turned behind and started looking at all the chain of causes that brings us up to this present moment. That's how we see science right now. So science is the story of the causes that, that bring me up to the current moment. Teleology was like, no, we were created for some things. And obviously, that world of purpose and foreness and teleological vision was deeply enchanted, embedded in the, you know, the Western Christian worldview that we were here. Like the famous, was the Westminster Catechism begins with a famous teleological back and forth. What is the 
What is the chief end of man? To enjoy God, glorify God, right? It begins with teleology. What are you here for? Right? What's your purpose? And you go, oh, to, to glorify God, to enjoy God. Okay, that's teleology. You're here. But now we have causality. You are the product of right, scientific, materialistic forces, evolution perhaps, that bring you to this current moment. Um, and so how, how has that disenchanted us? Well, it's many ways, but let me just mention one way that it's happened. Um, this is, by the way, uh, Leslie Newbegin. Does anybody know Leslie Newbegin, famous missiologist? So Leslie Newbegin was um, in England in the 40s. He goes to India, spends decades in India, returns to England in the 70s. And the England in the 40s from the 70s is very different. He steps back into a secular, disenchanted, post-Christian England, right? And he's like, wow, how did this happen? And so he starts thinking about secularism as a missionary. What happened? Culturally, what happened? This is what Newbegin says, right? If, if there were, I'll summarize this. He basically says, if, there, if people from other cultures were to transport to the modern day as anthropologists and missiologists, and they looked at us modern people in America, what would be the most obvious thing about us as a culture? And we might think it would be technology. Look, 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 people from the, you know, 1800s, we have, you know, magical devices. He says, no, it's not the technology. He said the most obvious thing that would strike a, like an ancient culture is really weird about us is that nobody in the room can tell you what the good is. Every culture up to ours, if you said, well, what is good? You're like, well, I mean, this is what's good. Right? Every culture existed to tell you what was the true and the beautiful and the good. But our culture is like, what is a good life? And you're like, I don't know. You know, like, you, you do you, right? You, 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 like, none of, nobody, there's no agreement on the good or the true or the beautiful. Um, that is the most obvious thing. And the reason why, as you see here, because we don't know what life is for anymore. So let me explain that, okay? And I get this, we're kind of in the weeds here, so I realize this is like the, an academic feel, but I promise if you get with me in the end, I'm gonna have a really practical take home point from this slide behind me, okay? I mean, I don't know, I don't look trustworthy, but I will deliver on that promise. There is gonna be a practical take home point that's very important for your church and my students, okay? But I got to explain this so you understand what I'm getting at. Okay. Knowing the purpose of something is the, was the glue that held the good, right, to the facts. Okay. So the best way to think about this is a watch. What is a watch for? Exactly. To tell time. And if your watch is constantly 30 minutes behind time, is it a good watch? So notice how if you know what a watch is for, the facts of the watch, it's always 30 minutes behind, and the valuation of it being a good watch are bound together. You'll see how this is important for human life. If you don't know what life is for, how do you know what a good life is? Okay, like you don't. Like, like, that's where our students are, right? My students, your young people. Like, what are you going to do with your life? Like, I don't know. Everything? Anything? I don't know. It's just a big, ambiguous kind of mess. Um, and so what happened is when we got rid of the purpose of life, facts became divorced from valuation. 
and I want to come back to that as, as, a, as a way to help re-enchant um, um, our, our students. And I'll, I'll give you some practical take-home points in there in a little bit. So once we lost the vision that life has a purpose, we lost the ability to say if it was good or true or beautiful. The last, no, no, the third of the four trends is um, what I would call the inward turn. Charles Taylor calls this the, the buffered self, but I don't like that term. Uh, I think the better term is the inward turn. The idea here is, is that we used to look for our identities beyond ourselves. Okay? Our identity was a gift that was given to us from something outside of ourselves. It wasn't a product of self-invention. Okay? But with the collapse of the belief in the transcendent, what did we do to find identity? We turn, start going, where do we start going? Right? We, start, we, we turn in. Okay? Um, and that's where we look for direction and purpose and meaning, right? We're, the North Star isn't the will of God. The North Star is, you know, you're a number three. <laughs> Sorry to bring up an Enneagram joke right there, but, but uh, I'm just saying, you know, something like, right? We're still obsessed with it. Like, like who am I? You know, who am I? Like, I am a, a number, and, 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 uh, and, and this explains all the things, right? And I can figure that out by myself, and now I know who I am, and I can use that self-knowledge. To, to plot a course for, you know, my meaningful life. And I'm not making fun of that. I'm a psychologist after all, right? So we are largely to blame for that, uh, right? That, that, that assessment craze and the self-diagnosis craze. Um, but the rise of the modern self, um, and here's why it's a source of disenchantment and also what I call in the book called the ache. And that is to say is that when, you, when we turn inward, um, the self became uh, neurotic, okay? It became neurotic. Um, because, because if you are the North Star of your life, you know, you're the captain of your own ship. I don't know about you, but I'm an unsteady ship captain, you know? I mean, I'm not, and we all know that, you know? And my, my students are looking at this, like we've given them this, this culture of finding their true meaning inside of themselves, and and I sometimes I think our Christian universities they they lay some like they lay some like Christian tinsel on top of that like what's your calling what's your vocation and there's a dream like like I'm gonna find my, here is who I am my enneagram number my personality test my my Myers Briggs my you know and then I'm gonna find this job and it's all gonna line up in this existentially meaningful way and this will be what God has called me to you know and then and then like, how, well, how's that gone for y'all, right? <laughs> like, like, it's not that way all the time. And, and, and we realize that life isn't one just big journey towards self-actualization. Um, anyway, so that's a part of the disenchantment as well, the inward turn. And then finally, what I said at the beginning, this kind of pagan resurgence or the collapse of a transcendent enchantment for what are called imminent enchantments. If you don't want to know the word imminent, um, the idea here is, the enchantment is already kind of embedded in the creational uh, order. So the idea of paganism is that creation has in it these enchanted powers and forces. So think about tarot. Think about, like, spell casting, right? There's these forces and powers. And then in casting a hex or a spell, I can um, harness those, those powers. Um, and, and so you kind of see that. There's a lot, you know, a lot of ways that we kind of reach for um, imminent enchantments. Um, like I had a big conversation with somebody about 
um, like role-playing games, uh, you know, how role-playing games or video games create kind of these pseudo-enchantments because I can immerse myself in these kind of heroic arenas and, and escape my mundane life. And then, you know, in this role-playing game or in this video game um, or, mess, you know, buying a tarot deck and messing around with that, my life becomes, you know, right? It's not just a materialistic thing. It, g- it gives a little sparkle, a little... So there's this kind of dabbling with enchantments that you see, um, even in entertainment culture. Okay, so um, so that's how we got here. All of that on the that I put on the screen um, is how we got to the disenchanted space, and all will become relevant going forward because I want to revisit each of these and say, okay, if that's a thing that's going on, like moralization, or the inward turn or even in enchantments, or a loss of teleology, each one of those things becomes a strategy that you can target in a kind of more surgical way than just like, what's wrong with these young people today? Like, that's not helpful, okay? I'm trying to give you, I'm trying to give you like, a, like a, an analytical apparatus to understand what's happening right in front of you so that when it's happening, you can be, you, you, have, you have proper medicine. For it. And what that medicine looks like, I'll go into it here in a second. But the heart of my advice, um, I'm going to use um, by going to scripture. And so if you, if you have a Bible, you can turn there. I want to tell you this story. In Honey Magic Eels, I, I, point, I draw attention to the story in Acts 14. Um, Paul and Barnabas are in Lystra. And the reason why I find Acts 14 fascinating and, and very helpful for our purposes is um, it's the first sermon ever preached to a holy pagan audience. Up until this point in Acts, all sermons have been preached to um, either Jews or God-fearing Gentiles. So these are people that know the story. So think, think of Stephen's sermon or, or Peter's sermon on <coughs> Pentecost, right? He goes back to the Abraham. He goes back to Moses. He goes back to David. You know, they, they get it, and they, and they connect all of that in good N.T. right fashion to Jesus the Messiah, Okay. But these people, no clue. Clueless. You're like, you know, ten plagues? You know? Like, not a single vegetarian viewing in the audience. Like, like I, don't know what, I don't know what you're talking about here. So, so Paul, is, he's, got a, he's got a bit of a task in front of him, right? Here's a, here, here are people that don't know any of this stuff. But we know in the next chapter when he's on Mars Hill, he says, but you know this God, Okay? It's an unknown God, but you know him because, as your own poets say, in him we live and move and have our being, right? This God, this God is as close to you as your own self. But i got to bring it into view. And so notice how, how Paul does this in Acts uh, 14. So what happens is they heal somebody, and, um, and they think that the Olympian gods have come down from Mount Olympus. It's like a Percy Jackson story. <laughs> Zeus and Hermes have come incarnate, okay? And they're about to, they call the priest of Zeus to come off for sacrifice, and they go, stop it. And then Paul delivers the first sermon in the history to a pagan audience. And notice, no reference to Moses, no David, you know, no Ten Commandments, no Mount Sinai, no covenant. Notice what, he, what does he point them to? This is what he does. Um, verse 15. Uh, friends, why are you doing this? You're about to offer this sacrifice. We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to the living God, who, notice what he starts doing, who made the heaven and the earth. 
and the sea and all that is in them. So he makes this broad gesture to, and this is not a bad place to make broad gestures to nature, this campus, right? He makes these broad gestures to the heavens and the earth and the sea, that ocean you see out there. He made that. Now, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. But, and here's key, he did not leave himself without a witness. Right? He's been speaking this entire time. And what's the witness? What are the words? For he did good. And he gave you from heaven the rains and the fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and filling them with joy. That's a killer sermon. The first sermon to the pagans, Paul goes for joy. That's not a bad evangelistic strategy, okay? Like to go at their joy and and. And, and I'll, I'll describe this as kind of a hermeneutics of experience. That joy in you, that's the witness of God, right? And this appeal to the natural world, that has a lot of play in a post-Christian culture. People do feel enchanted in nature more than anywhere else, right? You point to that and say, that's the witness, right? So nature and, and good meals. You point to these good meals with food, fellowship, and community, you know, all of that is the action and activity of God. And so what, what I describe in Honey Magic Eels is that what, what we're gonna, trying to do is address what is called attention blindness. Daniel Simons, cognitive psychologist, has described this thing called attention blindness. And, and you might have seen this. This is a famous uh, video. Um, you, and if you've seen it, you've seen it. If you've not seen it, just watch it. This is an awareness test. How many passes does the team in white make? Go! The answer is 13. But did you see the moonwalking bear? Um, how many of you, was that the first time you've ever seen that? How many of you did not see the moonwalking bear? Ha! Science! Uh, psychology. So, yeah, that's about what we find in the labs. About 50% of subjects do not see. The original study that I described in the book is um, a, a, a dancing gorilla. But we'll go, dancing gorilla, moonwalking bear. And so that in the point here is what's called attention blindness. And so we know this, right, that attention brings certain things into view, but does what? Blinds us to very obvious things about reality. This is the, this is the central idea uh, behind hunting magic eels, that, that our problem with God is fundamentally one of attention blindness. We're not dealing with crises of belief. You'll notice what Paul does in Acts 14 is not castigate them for their lack of belief, but he draws their attention to certain parts of their experiences and narrates that as, hey, that right there, joy, that's the dancing gorilla, right? That's the moonwalking bear, right? God comes into view. That's my big strategy in the book and what I'm going to be talking to you about in this next hour here is how do we 
direct the gaze of our children to the dancing gorilla, right? Our churches, um, you know, people in the world. How do we bring God into view? And what's fascinating about the attention blindness study is it's like just what Paul's dealing with, right? In one sense, God is the most obvious thing about your experience. And yet the most obvious thing, right, a guy in a gorilla suit or a guy in a bear suit is the very thing that you miss, right, the thing right in front of you. I think that's pretty profound. This is how Thomas Merton says it. Life is this simple. We are living in a world that is absolutely transparent and God is shining through it all the time. It's not just a fable or a nice story. It's true. And if we abandon ourselves to God and we forget ourselves, we see it sometimes and we might see it sometimes frequently. God manifests himself everywhere in everything, in people and in things and in nature and in events. And it becomes very obvious that he's everywhere and in everything and we cannot be without him. You cannot be without God. It's impossible. It's simply impossible. The only thing is we don't see it. Okay, we, we don't see it. Um, the reason why I think, oh, um, here's another example. I teach a class out at Fuller, and one of my students out at Fuller was preaching this to his church, and, and he, he didn't do the dancing gorilla. He did whale watching. And the story he told was how he had been living out here in California for over a decade, and how he had trained himself to see whales all the time. And his wife, in over a decade, has never seen a whale. And, and the reason he goes on to describe is because to see a whale, one has to, well, go to the shore. Right? You have to put yourself in a location where whales are. And you have to be patient. And, and, and if you do that, if there's, there's practices. You get the point here? There are practices that can bring whales into view. Okay, But if you don't have those practices, then you'll never, ever see a whale, right? So the question is like, where is God? Interesting, right? Where is he? If he's the dancing gorilla right in front of you, what practices bring God back into view? So anyway, I, I've been using that as an example. My wife found this on Facebook. Eric Smith took this picture. So attention blindness. What's fascinating about this, this is the um, not the only picture Eric Smith uh, Took, here's another one he took a couple years ago. Yeah. Yeah, this guy's on his phone. Attention blindness, right? Where is God? Hmm. Hmm. Maybe right there. Um, the reason why I think this focus on attention is helpful for us is because I think a lot of us, when we deal with crises of faith in ourselves, like I dealt for with for 20 years, or in our children, or in our churches, um, is that we typically frame this as a crisis of belief. People don't believe anymore, okay? Um, people don't believe anymore. But if, and, and the reason why, if we frame it as a crisis of belief, we put ourselves in a really difficult spiritual formation position because fundamentally, when I talk to people that struggle with belief, right, they're on this side with skepticism and doubt and disenchantment, and we're over here believing all the things, okay? And for those of you that are the charismatic and Pentecostals out there, you're like, I don't get this class at all. Because, <laughs> because like, you're like, I'm confused. Like, who? There are people out there that don't feel the Holy Spirit, like, all the time. Like, um, and by the way, I would say this. Let me just throw this out here. I would say that is one of the biggest unspoken divides in your churches, is the enchantment divide. Right? I mean, I know we have other divides. 
but the enchantment divide, right, where somebody gets up there and starts talking about, like, you know, there was a miracle and money showed up. And there's half the church is like, amen. And the other chance is like, I kind of think that was a coincidence, you know. <laughs> you know and, and nobody says that out loud, but you thought it, okay. You thought it. And, and, and so we just, right, and, and so and, and I, it's interesting. I, I've talked to, like, how do you pray for healing? You know, we're, all so, <laughs> we're all so confused, you know. We don't know. Do you do it, you know, like a kind of semi-disenchanted prayer, help the doctors and the medicine and give everybody comfort, okay? Well, you can't lose with that prayer, you know? And then, you know, like, you know, you're gathered around a sick person. You're praying. You're like, please guide the doctors and the medicine and, you know, you know, that science stuff is leaking in, you know? And then your friend, who's a complete Pentecostal, is like, forget that. We pray for healing, Lord. You know, you've been one-upped. You've been, in, like, one-upped in prayer. Like, okay, okay, I know I didn't say for complete healing, and, but you did, so I feel a little faithless right here. You know that's happened. Has that not happened? What if it happens in the same house? It can happen in the same house, right? You know, the disenchanted divide runs right to our churches, you know? Um, but what I'm saying is for that disenchanted person, you're over here, like, believing all the things. You know, Jesus is alive. God is good all the time. Like, you are in faith, okay? And this person looks over to here, and they're just like, I, I can't. Like, I can't make that. I can't make that jump. Like, how you can't. And that's the problem. If this is a crisis of belief, we're stuck because you can't will a belief. Like, you can't choose to believe. Let's go back to the aliens. I could say, just... Make yourself believe it, you know, like, like trying to move it in your mind from disbelief to belief. Like, you know, like you, you know, you, you feel the falseness in it. And yet, if that's the situation, crisis of belief, we're kind of stuck with our kids, right? If they don't find it believable, what are you going to do? Just look across this abyss of incomprehension. What seems obvious to you is a blankness for them. And so the reason I'm, I wanna, I'm passionate about the, the book and what we're talking about is because if it's a matter of attention, though, you can't work that angle, right? It gives you a lever to pull, okay? You can point to joy, nature, and these other experiences and bring something into view. Now, does that make them converts? No, remember what I said at the very beginning. We're, we're increasing the plausibility structures here, right? We're making something dead become more live, a cold option become a little bit more hot for them. Um, by doing that. A, a good example of this is this quote I found. This is not in the book. So those of you who read the book, you're like, he said all this before. Not this. This is new. I found this quote after I published the book, Iris Murdoch, a novelist. In this quote, she's describing how we change strong emotions. But her point is just as applicable for faith. I would argue this is the way forward in a post-Christian age. This quote encaptures everything I'm trying to communicate to you here. Where strong emotions of sexual love, of hatred, resentment, and jealousy are concerned, pure will can usually achieve little because it is small use telling yourself to stop being in love, to stop feeling resentment, to be just. What is needed is a reorientation which will provide an energy of a different kind from a different source. Notice the metaphors of orientation and of looking, changing ourselves. is not a jump of the will. It is acquiring of new objects of attention and thus new energies as a result of the refocusing, right? It's not just looking at somebody on the other side of the abyss and say, believe it. Just believe the whole thing. 
It is, rather, this reorientation. So let me rephrase the quote. Whenever we experience religious doubts or have crises of faith, pure will can usually achieve little because it is small use telling oneself, stop having doubts, believe, have faith. What is needed is a reorientation which will provide energy of a different kind from a different source. Notice the metaphors of orientation and of looking. Faith is not a jump of the will. It is the acquiring of new objects of attention and thus new energies as a result of refocusing. That's the, that's the idea. Okay, so this is a workshop, so I want to start being practical. So now, the practical turn, halfway through here. Um, okay, yeah, so there are three, in my estimation, levers you can pull um, as a parent, as a friend, as a pastor or preacher in, in trying to turn that attention around. They are recovering a sacramental ontology. I'll define that in a minute, okay? I get, I get that's kind of nerdy. I'll describe that in a minute. Practicing a rival teleological imagination. That's the purpose of life. And then being pulled into the world beyond your head. Um, and this is the work Mark, my friend Mark Love put me on um, after I published the book. So, um, so those are the three targets. And then I want to suggest um, a two-step process, because I'm from Texas, and that's how we dance. Um, anyway, okay. The two-step process in each of these areas is evoking what I call the ache. Like, remember I told you at the very beginning, I said, whenever I get my students and they stop typing and they start paying attention, it's usually when I'm doing this work. When I, when I say to them, do y'all feel lost? <laughs> do y'all feel like you're playing like a hot, like a, like, like your future of happiness, like a career and a marriage and, you know, a little yard in a suburb somewhere, right, this happy future, that you guys feel like you're just walking across a, a tightrope with like no safety net and anything, right, if you get a B in my class, if you don't, you know, if you fail chemistry and can't get to med school, if, you know, Luke warned us about marrying the wrong people this morning, you know, like, the whole thing just seems like a house of cards, doesn't it? And they just kind of look across towards happiness and go, like, I'm never going to get there. Like, I'm going to screw this up somehow, you know? Um, right? And so when I'm describing that, that precariousness that they all feel, and you guys all see that in young people, when I said there, there are two things you notice about young people today, the first thing I already said, they live in a very moralized climate. They want to be good people. They're woke, they're social justice warriors, and amen to that, okay? We should follow their lead on that. And yet, they're also angsty, anxious, depressed. Um, sociologists have descri described what are, you know, you've guys seen that for the first time since the 1918 American life expectancy have declined three years in a row. And you guys know why? Because of a new kind of death. Like, like you know, welcome, welcome to our world. We now have a new kind of death. What are they, what's it called? You all know. Deaths of despair. Deaths of despair from suicide, um, overdose, and liver disease due to alcoholism. 
those are skyrocketing. Depending on the population, it could be a it's a 30% increase. To some, it's 300% increase, right? That's the ache. That's, so one of the things we can do is evoke that spiritual thirst, restlessness, um, pain, boredom. Um, I use boredom a lot because that's the other thing our students are. They're, yeah, they're, they're, they're anxious, but they're also bored a lot. Like life adrift in consumer culture is just, it's, it's the, you know, you, you guys on Netflix and Hulu and Disney, you know, like, there's nothing on. <laughs> that sense of like nothing compelling, that kind of sense of boredom and listlessness. Like, um, and so when I want to bring in, when I want to bring the dancing gorilla into view, you know, I'll say, are you guys bored a lot? And they're like, we are kind of bored. And they're like, that's God. That, that hole where something compelling, right, that what is life for, that's missing. You don't know what life's for, you know. And so we, we live with what I'll call the, the fake eschatologies of consumerism. The fake eschatology. So, so I'll, I'll, like, just rant at my students. It's like, here's the thing. Like, Jeff Bezos, he wants you godless and bored. Because if you're godless and bored, there's something they can sell you, you know. Marvel, they want you godless and bored because, you know, well, hey, the, the last episode of Moon Knight, Moon Knight landed tonight. That's true. It's, it's, it's Wednesday, isn't it? Thank you. Very excited about that. Right? It gives me something to look forward to. Wednesday, Moon Knight, final episode, a fake eschatology. I'm living for the future, but it's the product to buy that fills that kind of hole. And then that satisfies, and then what happens? There's another product, another product, another product, right? Um, so evoking the ache. And then the other thing, um, I discovered this. So those of you who have read the book, this is new too. Um, since the publication of the book, um, lots of people have shown up in my inbox and friends pointed me to the work of Harmit, I think it's Harmit Rosa, a book called Resonance. I'm not suggesting you read it, but it's a big sociology book on on what he calls resonance. And resonance is that the, the sense that we're, we're missing a resonant experience with life. We, we would be, I'd be calling that enchantment. Um, and so we're, we're to try to evoke a resonant experience, that's kind of complicated, so let me explain that a little bit. So Harmut Rosa, he says um, <clears throat> a resonant experience, what he calls having a successful relationship with the world, is being in a relationship that uh, Martin uh, Buber, some of you guys know the famous Jewish theologian, not having an I-it relation with the world. Well, the world is a dead, static object, because that's what materialism does to us. It just treats the world as a dead, static object. To the sense that my encounter with the world is relational, that I'm encountering not an it, but a what? A thou. I feel addressed by the world. Something is... It's at Acts 14, he has not left himself with what? A witness. I'm being addressed all the time. I'm being spoken to, or the language of the Psalms, right? Creation, no, no speech is heard, right? But it, it's constantly pouring forth. I'm always being spoken to by thou. And, and so he describes this relationship as be, the ability to be reached by the world, like something's trying to reach you. Um, the ability to be emotionally, to respond to the world, like with, with joy or pleasure. Um, or awe, the ability to have that experience change you, and also the sense that it cannot be controlled. In fact, that's what um, 
Karmat Rosa's latest book called Uncontrollability describes is the more, one of the reasons why the world has fallen silent is the more we've controlled it and, and, and dominated it, the more it's fallen silent because it becomes raw material for our ability to manipulate it rather than a sacred presence that is speaking to us. And if that sounds a little woo-woo, that is a little woo-woo, but it also will preach in this world, right? I'll give you two quick examples of this. Um, do you guys, you guys, um, you got, you got, I was like, you guys recall the fires, and you're like, oh, yes, we, we, we recall. Um, but the fires last year, do you all remember those pictures that went around about the sequoias being wrapped in foil? Remember that? They were like aluminum. So the fires were threatening these sequoias, these biggest trees in the world, and they didn't want them to, to burn, and so they wrapped them in foil. Um, and, and, and what's interesting is that because the sequoias are thou's, right? They're speaking to us about, right? They're, they're kind of, they have a holiness about them. That's why we protect them. They're not just like an it, not just lumber. Another example, um, in gross anatomy, anybody go to med school? So in gross anatomy, what do you do in gross anatomy? You, you like dissect the body over the course of an entire year, right? And that's a very clinical, surgical um, experience. And you could treat the body from a completely scientific perspective. And you need to as a, as a physician. But you know like 90% of med schools across the country do memorial services for the bodies in gross anatomy labs. Why is that? Because the body's not an it. It is a thou. That was a person. Right? That's evoking resonance. Okay? A relational dynamic between us and the trees. Okay? Um, between us and, right, that body that was donated to me, I express gratitude for this. This is something that's sacred, right? This, so when we draw people's attention to the sacredness that interrupts us in these spaces, even in a, even in a post-Christian world, we feel these kinds of things. Well, this is the way Marilyn Robinson described it in an interview. You know her from the, um, the, the novels. Um, ordinary things have always seemed numinous to me, or, right, enchanted, resonant. One Calvinist notion deeply implanted in me is that there are two sides to your encounter with the world. You don't simply perceive something that is statically present, right? Not I, it. But in fact, there is a visionary quality to all experience. It means something, the experience, because it is, that's the word, right? It is addressed to you. You're being spoken to. Um, and you can draw from perception, right, attention, the same way a mystic draws from a vision. That, that is kind of like high level, right, to look at all experience like a holy, sacred encounter. Like, like every time I'm, when I, I can look at you, there's, a, there's an, right, I, I it or I thou. Like, here's an example, just recently. This, and I'm giving you a, like, a, like a silly example because I don't want to make this very overly mystical. Um, so last summer, we were in Pennsylvania. My family likes ice cream, and so we were at this like, ice cream stand that's been there since the 50s. We like do this all the time. We go get, the, get in line, get a cone. And so I was in line to get this ice cream cone, and there was a grandfather and a grandson getting a cone. And the, little, the grandson was just like as excited as like, he was getting his ice cream. And you can see the grandfather was like, this is going to be the highlight of his, if not his day, his week, right? I mean, he's, 
And they were just so happy to be getting there. And they get up there, what do you want to get? And, this, and they, you know, the kid orders, and he gets his ice cream cone and sprinkles, and, and, and uh, the grandfather gets it. And then they go to this little bench, and they go off, and they sit. And they sit in this bench, and it was just this grandfather and this grandson just, like, eat these cones, you know. And I'm watching the whole thing, and I'm, like, I'm starting to get teary, you know. And, 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 and you want to go over there and go, like, I just want to say that you all are beautiful. And, and, and I don't do that, you know, because I got a little bit more social skills than that. But, but, uh, but you all know exactly what I'm talking about. Like, have you been, like, getting checked out in some supermarket, and there's, like, some young person there, and there's something about their joy or their smile, or their, and, and you just want to kind of say, I just want to say in the, in the, the non-creepiest way possible <laughs> that you kind of glow, and, you know, and walk off, right? You know, just, just don't want how, how many of you have seen that? Right? You can, you can draw from perception like a mystic everywhere. Right? You can draw from ordinary. You don't have to go off to some contemplative re retreat. And like, you can draw from perception like a mystic. Like it all can glow if we bring that, right, that I-thou experience in. Now, I, I get that can be hard to do, but, that, but we all bump into that. Even the godless bump into those moments where they're kind of like, I don't know, but this kind of seems like a special moment. or this, I, I feel these kinds of things. And that's when you start narrating their experience like Paul does in Acts 14, um, is bringing that into you are being addressed. That's what I mean by resonance. Okay? That's what I mean by resonance. So how do you do that? I'm going to walk now through our three um, areas. Recovering a sacramental ontology, and then teleology, and then the, the next couple ones, and then I'm going to run out of time. And then I want to end a little bit so we can ask questions. So I'll go quick. So what do I mean by sacramental ontology, what I just talked about, th that idea of resonance? The, the word sacrament, a visible sign of what? An invisible reality. Okay. So when, I, when we see nature or we see that grandfather and that grandson eating that cone, they become sacramental in the sense that they're pointing me to, to realities, mystical realities that are embedded. And ontology means existence. The sense that the stuff of life, in the, in the language of Gerard Manley Hopkins, the world is charged, like with electricity, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. And my book talks about so many different ways we can kind of bring those invisible realities into view. Um, the way of beauty, that's big in the Catholic tradition. People who, do, you follow Bishop Robert Barron out here in L.A. Um, he's in charge of Word on Fire, which is a Catholic evangelism group. And that's big with them, the, word, um, the way of beauty. That one of the ways that tugs on our hearts, the sacred tugs on our hearts is aesthetics. And going back to my um, children, um, Brendan was the spiritually precocious one. Aiden, the whole Church of Christ thing, is pretty devoid of aesthetics. I don't know if you noticed like, just, just how ugly um, our tradition is. Um, I'm sorry. It is. I remember when ACU built chapel on the hill and put on stained glass. We completely freaked out, you know, like, <laughs> ah, colored glass. You know, it's just too, it's too pretty, you know, it's, too Catholic, you know, and, but my, my son Aiden, though, he, he wasn't getting it, but you know what? He is a bit of an artist, and um, 
and the aesthetics of the liturgical and Catholic tradition, the beauty, um, that, that, that has caught his attention. That has caught his attention. So whenever we go through, like, airports together, dad drops in his rosary, and my son drops in his rosary next to me, okay? And now that's weird, okay? That might be weird for Church of Christ people. I don't pray the rosary. I use other prayers for it. Um, but I carried it in my pocket as a material reminder, right? Like that. That's why I put that thing up there, a material reminder. And here's the thing. You know what? I mean, maybe that's a little weird, um, but prayer beads, the aesthetics of that, the beauty of them, he owns like a bunch of them, buys them on his own now. Uh, that, that caught his attention, right? Um, the materiality of it, the aesthetics of it, and brought God into view for him in a way kind of a normal evangelical praise service just wasn't doing it for him. But you take him into a liturgical space, like his heart fires up. And you notice, you have to notice these things about your kids and go, where, are they, where is God speaking to them? How do I get them in a space where God is the dancing gorilla coming into view? Nature, obviously. Poetry. is. I mean, in, in, that's what poetry is, isn't really. It's practicing sacramental perception. So some of you guys are big Mary Oliver fans. You guys like Mary Oliver? But, but yes, exactly. Like, if you don't know the poetry of Mary Oliver, I mean, she could just walk out and look at a bird. And, you know, it just God speaks. And, and, and so poetry, because that, what, what is poetry trying to get at? Not just the facts. It's not a scientific perception. What is poetry? The meaning, right? The meaning. And that's one of the things I did with the, my Fuller students when I taught a class about this, is they had poetry assignments. From go out in space and write poetry, share it with the class, practice it as a spiritual formation exercise. That brings God back uh, into view. Um, and then religious experiences. Like I said, all of us, this goes back to William James and the rise of religious experience. We all bump into kind of the sacred from time to time. Um, that is not an unusual experience, even for the godless. Um, they, 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 will, they will come to Pepperdine and they will look out and kind of go like, I don't know what this is, but there's something here. Um, so, so that's a way to, to devote attention. Um, arrival teleological imagination. Uh, remember that without a purpose, life becomes... What creates what, what we would call a vacuum of meaning or boredom, or what I've described um, as hope sickness. Um, our world is very hope sick. We, we, we just don't see hope anywhere. Um, and the reason is because we've lost the Christian eschatological imagination, or, or that way Julian of Norwich would say, all will be well and all shall. We don't, we've lost the metaphysics of that, and now we just doom scroll social media, and you're like, this just seems like a mess. And, and so we get, we're, we're very, hope, deaths of despair, right? Hope sickness, okay? Um, what way I describe it with my students is the myth of Sisyphus, Camus, Albert Camus' myth of Sisyphus. Do you remember Sisyphus, the Greek legend? What is Sisyphus? He's condemned to do what? Yeah, he's condemned in the underworld to roll a rock up a hill, and then what happens? It rolls back down. He goes back down, rolls a rock up the hill. Okay? Camus says, that's modern life. Your life is going nowhere. All your work, all the strain, you know, you know like HCU. I'm going to pour my life into this school. 
you know. And then we're going to stand around a, a cake bought at Walmart. <laughs> and, you know, they'll be like, best of luck to you. And I'm like, ah, I kind of gave my life to this institution. And you're like, and the incoming freshman class will have no idea who you are, you know. And that's true, you know. And, right? And so Camus begins the myth of Sisyphus with like one of the most provocative and shocking lines, I think, in all of literature. There's but one pressing question of philosophy, and that is suicide. And his point is, if we don't have a purpose or a goal, right, teleology, if we're not going anywhere and we're just rolling rocks up the hill, or in the words of Henry David Thoreau, most men lead lives of what? quiet desperation. If that's it, then why wouldn't the question, what makes any of this worth, worth living? You know? And so, how do you evoke resonance here? I'll give you, I don't have a lot of time, I'll give you an example of this. Um, so, a couple years ago, remember when the new atheists were all out? The new atheists? Anyway, there was, if you missed that, it was like Daniel Dennett, uh, Christopher Hitchens, and um, Richard Dawkins. And so the book titles are like The End of Faith, The God Delusion, and God, well, I think it's God is not great. Yeah, God is not great. And so their titles are dropping upon my students like metaphysical bombs, you know. And so I had a student named Brad who came to me. He goes, I, I've been reading a lot of these books, and, um, and uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm shaken. Can we, have a, can we have a talk? And so we sat down for a talk. And, you know, all the questions. Why does a good God allow, you know, suffering, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, why, why, what about the genocide in Joshua? What, what, what about the atonement? Like, why does God have to kill somebody? What about hell being eternal and torture going on forever and ever? Like, like just all the questions. Like, you, you, know, what, you know, what about the dinosaurs? Okay, all the things. You know, and so I'm answering his questions, and that's a, you know you can't answer all those questions. You know that that's an onion that gets peeled throughout your life. But at the end of the but the end of the talk, I said, Brad, can I before we go, can I ask you can I ask you one question? He said, Yes, you can ask me a question. And I said, Brad, do you want to live a beautiful life? And he he it caught him off guard. He paused. He goes, Yeah. I go, well, what, what's your aesthetic? Like, what, what do you find beautiful? Because, as I said, that's why I showed you that prior slide, you can't determine what life is beautiful until you know what life is for, right? Until you know what life is for, you can't tell if this life you're living is an ugly life, a wasted life, a good life, a beautiful life. Like, and notice what I, so notice what I did with him. In the question, I got out of the, like, apologetics mode, and I pushed him into teleology, right? You want to live a beautiful life? Yeah. Then where is that going, right? Let, let, let me put something out in front of you that's more interesting than, you know, the next, you know, Marvel release, okay? Um, your life is bigger than you getting a new iPhone, right? What, what makes it beautiful? Life. Um, uh, another way practically to do this is what's called sanctification theory. So this is from psychology. Sanctification theory is this idea that comes from goal setting. Okay, goal setting. 
And researchers have suggested that most of our life goals, um, where some of our life goals can be like sanctified. And by sanctified, a goal becomes connected to some sort of transcendent, enchanted life purpose. So for example, if you gotta go get the oil change in your car, probably hard to sanctify that goal, right? You don't go off to get the oil change as a part of some cosmic <laughs> plan, you know? You're just like, I gotta go do this thing, you know? Right, but some goals can be sanctified. Like what you're doing, this mundane, repetitive daily task can be connected to a teleological end or goal. And that's called the sanctification of your goals, the sanctification of life. And my favorite example of this, many of you know this resource, is Every Moment Holy. Has anybody, I mean, it is like a must have. Like, like, and if you, and, and you, if you look through the, 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 the table of contents of Every Moment Holy, it's, it's like, a liturgy for doing the dishes, a liturgy for washing clothing, a liturgy for changing diapers, a liturgy for standing in a long line, a liturgy for, the, you know, um, just like liturgy for students, a liturgy for waiters and servers, a liturgy for every moment becomes holy. And what it does is it does it by taking these routine goals and connecting them to kind of eschatological ends. Notice what we're doing here, everybody. We are practicing eschatological uh, eschatology. We're practicing teleology. We don't just say believe, we practice aiming ourselves to a goal or a purpose and connecting this, this traffic commute to something transcendent. Okay? Now you might say, well, how do you do that? Let me read you an example. Um, of, this is my, one of my favorite ones for, for domestic days. Listen to the connection to eschatology and teleology. Uh, language about goals and purposes and ends. So here's how the prayer starts. I won't read the whole thing, but here it is. Many are the things that must be daily done. Amen? Right? Meet me, therefore, O Lord, in the doing of these small repetitive tasks, in the cleaning and the ordering and the maintenance and the stewardship of these things, of dishes and floors, carpets and toilets and tubs, of scrubbing and sweeping and of dusting and laundering, that by such stewardship I might bring a greater order to my own life and to the lives of any that I am given to serve, so that in those ordered spaces bright things might flourish, fellowship and companionship, creativity and conversation, learning and laughter and enjoyment and health. And here it is. Listen for, the, listen for the teleology. As I steward the small daily tasks, may I remember these good ends and so discover that in my labors, the promise of eternal hopes that underlie them. That's sanctification theory. That's, that's concretely wrapping up my daily mundane disenchanted space and bringing something holy and sacred back into view through a practice of a, te what I'm saying here, of a rival teleological amount. So it's either this, right? You're either Sisyphus, okay, with no teleology. Your life is going nowhere that we know of, okay? I mean, to death it is, but, or, and so you can drift in this, non-teleological space, or you can practice 
a different imagination where I sweep up the small. A great example of this is, is Hannah, Hannah's song in Samuel, right? How she connects her little, little, little domestic drama to God's great salvific purposes. If you watch that, it begins with a little domestic squabble. But by the end of that thing, she is like God's cosmic exodus story. She connects her story to that bigger story. We can, we can practice that. Um, here's another example. Um, this one is for waiting in lines. Um, as my life is received in, anticipa- in anticipation of the redemption of all things. We're right there, right, with eschatology. So let me, my slow movement in this line <laughs> be to my own heart a living parable and a teachable moment. So do not waste even my petty irritations, O Lord. Use them to expose my sin and my selfishness and to reshape my vision, right, back to perception, reshape my vision and my desire into better, holier things. Decrease my unrighteous patience directed at circumstances and people. Increase instead my righteous longing for the moment of your return. And all creation will be liberated from every futility in which it now languishes. And I could go on, but you all see the, that's, that's what I mean. I know the term up there is complicated, practicing arrival teleological imagination. But what you got to do is you got to practice your eschatology. And here's the thing. If, otherwise, you're back to the leap of the will, right? You look at a hope-sick world, a despairing world, and you go, hope, <laughs> you know, and you're like, you know, like, be hopeful, You're like, ah, right? But we got to practice, in the words of Wendell Berry, we practice resurrection, right? We practice resurrection. Not a jump of the will, right? You can't be optimistic overnight. you got to bring that slowly in view through these disciplines of, like, sanctification. Um, and finally, um, again, like I said, my friend Mark put me, Put me onto this book, The World Behind, uh, Beyond Your Head, um, Becoming an Individual in Age of Distraction. Um, it's a great book. It's not about spirituality, but it's really about um, handiwork and having objects that you work with with your hands. Um, but the idea, Michael Crawford, I believe, right? Michael Crawford? Michael Crawford writes the book about how in, a, in this neurotic, inward-looking thing, we need uh, to be pulled out of ourselves back into the world. And, and the, the word, the Latin word attention means uh, to, make, to make tense. And he talks about how attention is a practice of latching on to something outside of our heads, which creates this like tension point between us and the exterior, a reality greater than my own that, allow, that is, can be pulled me out of my neurotic mess in, back into, into the world again. Um, so I'll give you an example of this with my students. So the other, a couple months ago, I like tripped and I was falling. And you know, when you trip and fall, what do you do? You reach out. I tripped and fell and I was close to a wall and I, you know, I reached out and I made contact with the wall to steady myself. And I don't know if it was a mystical experience or just me talking to myself, but like a voice went through my head, okay? And the voice said, this is prayer, okay? So I went to my students. I said, I've been thinking about that voice in my head, and this is what I've concluded from this little 
my little woo-woo experience. When you are falling, you reach out to make contact with something more sturdy than yourself. That is prayer. I'm not getting into all this God, like, like I'm, I'm trying to pull my students into the world beyond their heads, okay, to make contact with something more sturdy than, than themselves. Um, another way, um, a phrase from the theologian Wesley Hill, when we think about grace and the geometry of joy and mattering, um, uh, that pulls us out. And I, well, actually, it's like 4.15. Yeah, so I have time. I should slow down a second here. I'm rushing. Um, and uh, what do I mean by mattering? Um, one of the things I talk about with my students is um, what I call the trap of self-esteem. And self-esteem is just defined in psychology as like a global assessment of your own value. Which kind of sucks if you think about it, right? Like, like really? I got to do that for myself? Like, yeah. What do you think about yourself? Like, uh-oh. <laughs> that's kind of, that's a tough, that's the trouble is we put out in front of an entire generation self-esteem as like the medicine for mental health, right? And what instead what we've done to our young people is turn life into an 80-year-long project of trying to like yourself, you know? I don't know about you, like that goes up and down constantly. You know, I'm a mess. I'm probably going to leave here, and my wife's going to say, how to go? And I'm like, I don't know. You know, a couple people walked out. I don't know if I should have said the word sucked. I don't, like, I don't, I don't know. Like, this is, you know, how I normally do it. I'm all over the place. Like, I don't know. And, I, you know, you just, if you've ever been in any sort of performative space, you're just a complete mess, you know, a complete wreck. And you need reassurances. And so that's why my wife's here. Like, I'm sure it was fine, you know. I'm sure it was fine, you, you know. Um, right, like, like self-esteem, that's an unsteady situation, okay? Um, the other theory, dominant theory of self-esteem, is called the sociometer theory. The idea here is that self-esteem is like this internal thermometer, like, so, like it's thermometer, sociometer, and self-esteem is this feedback loop that tells you if you are, worthy, to use Brene Brown's language, like worthy of love and belonging, you know? So when you feel not included, right, not picked, that this internal feedback loop says, you know, you're not being added to the group, right? And that's volatile too, you know, that my, my well-being. And you think about our young people, like the degree to which their peer groups is, you know, we're handing our happiness to people if they date me, include me like me on social media. This is why I think social media is hurting us, is, is because of the sociometer. I'm constantly getting feedback, and my self-esteem isn't stable and steady, but it's toggling up and down and up and down all the time. Anyway, but psychologists, and I talk about this in the book, talk about um, mattering. Now, this, the psychologists were so funny. Like, we discover these things, and religious people have been talking about these for centuries, you know, <laughs> and you know, and so I had to do this whole lecture to my students called the Secret of Happiness Lecture. So I said, you paid a lot of tuition for ACU. We owe it to you. <laughs> you know, so it's like, I was like, on April 23rd, I will tell you the secret of happiness. And I do. I tell them the secret of happiness. Because I'll say, do you guys know what is, the, what is the, 
what is the number one trait of the happiest people in the world? Like this, like most of you guys fall on podcasts on positive psychology, the happiness lab. You guys know the answer to this. What is like, the, the, what is the one thing happy people do? They practice gratitude. Gratitude. Now think about that. How does that pull you out of your head? Because what is gratitude? What is it an emotion of? Thankfulness for what? Right. Gratitude is the emotional response of having received some benefit, gift, or favor, right? Some, some grace comes to you, and that prompts gratitude, okay? You all see how that turns the world into an I-thou relationship? Like, like, like I've been, life becomes grace and a gift, and suddenly a resonant relationship is, is emerging here. So I can look at my life with dissatisfaction, or I could grace it by just practicing gratitude. So that's another way of increasing enchantment. Is, is welcoming people into thankfulness. Um, or as Paul says it, what is it that you have that you did not receive? All's grace, right? All's grace. What, what, what actually do you have, right, that, that has not been a gift to you, you know? And he, and he puts them in that posture of thankfulness. So, so when I talk about the geometry of joy, what I'm talking about is, the geometry of the introverted inward turn of neurosis versus the outward turn of a posture of what I call in the book eccentricity, borrowing from David Kelsey, an eccentric posture or an outward turning posture that receives gifts, that restores resonance, but also the gift of value back to self-esteem. So psychologists have also discovered that the happiness people, happiest people in the world are characterized by a thing called mattering. And I talk about, I give a lot of attention to this in the book because when I really preach at my students, I really kind of hit mattering and gratitude really, really hard. And, and, I, and mattering is simply, it's defined in the literature, it's just simply the, it's sometimes it's called existential significance. And mattering is the belief that you, I don't know, wait for it, that you matter, no matter what, right. Now, for a religious person, for a religious person, you're like, well, of course, that the shape of my, my significance is eccentric. I'm not trying to like myself. I receive my mattering, my significance, my worth, my purpose as a, as a gift, okay? Um, in fact, when I talk about on the prior slide, I talk about meaning in life. So another virtue that, that predicts happiness is what's called meaning in life. And psychologists define meaning in life by three different, it's a cord woven from three strands. They are the coherence, that your life makes sense, it's coherent, comprehensible. Like if there's something that happens to you and I can't, like a trauma, I can't make sense of it. It's there kind of as this anomaly and it creates this psychic friction. So you've got to go to psychotherapy to what? Kind of talk that story back into the web of your life until you understand its place, you understand its meaning, right? right? That's a lot of what therapy is, is about how to re-narrate our lives. Here's the second thing about meaning in life, coherence, purpose. What's that? Teleology. If your life has a goal or an aim, you have meaning in life. What, like you can say, I'm living a beautiful life. I have a purpose. I have a reason to get up in the morning. I'm not living a life of quiet desperation. I am not Sisyphus. I have a purpose. And then the third one is mattering. 
And so the way I describe it is the three ingredients to meaning in life are story, purpose, and worth. And those are things that have to be kind of received. They, they come to us outside of the, our own psychological mess. Um, so that's what I mean by the geometry. But then community. Um, and I'm going to stop right here. We're going to take questions. Let me say this one more thing. And because um, I don't think, yeah, let me go back. You'll have to invite me to your church to finish this presentation. Uh, <laughs> So we're not going to get anywhere close to this. I have like five hours of material here. Um, but let me, let me uh, uh, say this about community. Like, religious people, and this is the other secret. This is another thing that we should be more confident about. Like, the other secret of happiness is religiosity has been associated with happiness after study, after study, after study. Um, Right? Religion predicts happiness. And the reason why I think religion is related to happiness is because you have these moves you can make when your life is in, a, in the ditch, you know? Like you can, like Paul, he's in jail. Like think about Philippians, right? So I have the word joy up here. Think about Philippians. Where's Paul? He's in jail. And we call the letter of Philippians his epistle to joy. Like where is that? Like, and it's because he says, I've learned the secret of being content. I'm not assessing my situation factually. I'm looking at this with greater enchanted horizons. Um, and so religious people, I think, get this really easy. But I remember once I was invited up to a business school. Okay, So I'm talking to these high-power business people. And so they are constantly playing the metrics of self-esteem. You know, they're, they're winning or they're kind of losing. And, um, you know, and I get to the mattering thing. And, and I don't know how to close the loop for them, like, because they, they don't share my faith convictions, you know. And so I was like, you know, the way I came home, Janice, Janice said, how'd it go? I said, well, I got him to third base. <laughs> but I just couldn't bring him home. Like, I couldn't bring him home. And he's like, what do you mean? I go, because to get all the way home, you just got to believe this, that you matter. And if you have a faith tradition, you can go there. With that, right? You have, you have a you can go there, but they didn't have it. And so, what's the next best thing? I said. So I said to this secular audience, I said, if you have a faith tradition, you will have resources here, okay? If you if you have a faith tradition, you have resources that you can go to for mattering, okay? Um, but if you don't, then community. You're going to have to surround yourself with people who will speak life into you, okay? This is this is Bonhoeffer's famous quote that the the Christ. Um, in my heart is weaker than the Christ on the lips of other Christians, right? So when our hearts, he says, are uncertain and unsure, the hearts of our brothers and sisters are certain and sure. And so that's where, that's where an appeal for church can come in. And so when I talk to my students, because that's a criticism of my book, another criticism of my book, um, and uh, was... You know, I, I see your point about disenchantment, but in my experiences, the main reason people are turning away from the church is because of the failed moral witness uh, of the church. They're, they're seeing these catastrophes, political catastrophes. They're seeing mega church pastors. They're listening to the, you know, Mars Hill podcast, and that's why they don't want to touch the church. And, and I get that. I get that. But where can I evoke an interest 
you know, and, and it's, it's typically with like, hey, churches are not nonprofits. They, they exist to love you as well. They're not just, aid, you know, agents of your moral action in the world. They exist to love you. And so when you come in and you're the one that's broken and you're the one that's lost, you've got to have people stand in front of you as sacramental witnesses of the love of God. As I like to say, church is to make the love of God believable, right? That's what we do. We, we make the love of God believable for people. They come in and go, like, I don't believe any of this. Like, well, okay, that's fine. But when you love them and, you know, so I, I tell my students, like, listen, I get it, I get it, but find a healthy church. It'll do your heart good. And, and that's the thing I say to pastors um, all the time. Like, I was, I was some pastors during COVID, and, and one of the pastors asked me, like, can you remind us again why what we do matters, <laughs> you know? And I said, here's the sad thing about what, what you guys do um, is uh, on social media, we just see the disasters. But everybody, and they're not just pastors, everybody in a church, if I said to you, here's the mic, open mic night, I just want you to tell a story of a saint in your church that lives like a hidden life, that, that, right? That you're witnessing heroic acts of care for an aging parent. That you're seeing people fight for their marriages. You're seeing parents walk their kids through seasons of addiction or mental illness. You see them giving anonymously and serving. Like, like how many of you have a story in mind? Okay, exactly. And none of it's ever told. It's never told. And so all we hear is this narrative, the church is a disaster, when it's anything but a disaster. It is like the glue and the leaven that's always at work in the world. And so I, so I, what I said to the pastors was, the reason why what you do matters um, is because of the zombie apocalypse. And they said, like, they said, what, like, what do you, what do you mean, the zombie apocalypse? And I said, if you sucked every church out of the world right now, I don't want to see what's left behind. Like if every of all of that, that stuff that you bear witness to, it's just sucked out of every neighborhood, every food pantry, right? Every phone call that's made, everybody goes check on somebody. Like you suck all that out of the world, right? Um, I think it's a zombie apocalypse that's left behind. I think the world becomes a little crueler, right? It's a little meaner, and it's even a little bit more separated, um, less stitched together. And so what you do in your churches, and not just the pastors, everybody that has gone back through COVID and persisted in the fidelity of all of that, like that's the Lord's work, you know? And we need to be really confident about telling people, you know, I think we're embarrassed, frankly. Many of us are just embarrassed about the church. I, don't, I think we can stop being embarrassed and say, you, you come to my church, okay? You, you come, people are going to love you. You know, you come to my church. Um, I, think, I think we could be bolder about that. So let me, let me end, and then we'll have some questions. I know you guys have been awesome. Um, I pushed you hard. Um, I want to end with a quote um, that I end my book with about enchantment. Um, uh, I tell the story in the book that um, during my 20 years of doubting, um, people always said that if you read the Brothers Karamazov, has anybody read the Brothers Karamazov? If you read the Brothers Karamazov, Ivan Karamazov's atheistic 
right, tirade against his brother, um, Alyosha, is the most scathing atheist critique you will ever hear. Like, nobody's articulated a greater criticism of the Christian faith than Ivan Karamazov. And he puts suffering children at the heart of it, you know. And, and then, that's there. That sits in the book. And I tell the story how, like, when I was in my doubting phase, I was like, oh, the, the greatest atheist criticism of Christianity. And, and, I, and I read the book um, right up through his speech, and I then set it down because it was. It was, it was a drop-dead argument. It was like, that's it. It's hard to believe in God being good, you know. And that's the other thing I would say, I say to my students. I said, the, the sad thing about your faith, and, and I name this for my students, so this is another way to evoke resonance. So the sad thing about our faith is we teach you to love. Um, we teach you to love, teach you to be compassionate. And that love and compassion takes you into the darkest parts of the world. And there your faith wavers in the darkness. So that's the saddest thing. I would say the great tragedy of our faith is how the devil uses our love as an acid of faith. And... And so that's what Ivan Karamazov do. He leverages the compassion that we have for that, children, that child against belief, and it's devastating. And so I, I set the book aside and um, figured that was it. You know, I'm done. And, but I always knew that, you know, Dostoevsky was a, a Christian. That many people consider the Brothers Karamazov like this great Christian book, you know. But I didn't want to hear that. Again, attention, attention, attention. I had a diet of skeptical books, produces a pretty reliable outcome, right? So during this season of re-enchantment, I read through the whole, I read through the whole um, book. And in the book, there is a, a, a monk, uh, Elder Zuzma, and he's about to die. So he gives this, he gives this last speech to um, the, the monks. And one of the monks is Alyosha, the brother of Ivan Karamanzov. And... Um, and I read this passage. I'm going to read it to you. And, and this is one of those moments where life became resonant for me again. Um, when things started to um, crackle and hum with the, the enchantment of God. So this is the Elder Zosma giving his kind of dying sermon to these students of his. He said, friends, love all of God's creation, both the whole of it and every grain of sand. Love every leaf, every ray of God's light. Love animals. Love plants. Love each thing. Because if you love each thing, you will perceive the mystery of God in all things. And once you have perceived it, you will begin tirelessly to perceive more and more of it every day. And you will come at last to love the whole world with an entire universal love. Friends, love is a teacher, but one must know how to acquire it, for it is difficult to acquire. It is dearly bought by long work and over a long time, for one ought not to love for a chance moment, but for all time, anyone. Even a wicked person can love by chance. My young brother once asked forgiveness of the birds. 
And it seems senseless to ask forgiveness of the birds. And yet this was right. For all is like an ocean. All flows and connects. Touch it in one place and it echoes at the other end of the world. And so let it be, brothers and sisters, madness to ask forgiveness of the birds. Still, it would be easier for the birds and also for a child and for any animal near you. If you yourself were more gracious than you are now, if only by a drop, still it would be easier. And when I read that, I was like, I don't know what the problem of evil is. I don't, you know, like that's the rationalistic spinning. But my attention turned to this other thing where every moment is connected and alive and resonant. And I can't answer, even to this day, all the questions that all you know, my students can ask me. And so I just say, hey, you want to live a beautiful life? And what's more beautiful than that? Because the beauty of the Christian tradition is that love is also the truth and grounds all things. And that's pretty mystical and enchanted. But if you step into that perception, that dancing gorilla comes into view, and all the world sparkles like fire and light. So I have a lot more to say. Maybe the book can help. But we do have 18 minutes. You may want to walk, right? Like you feel like, I kind of feel trapped by you right now. Um, and so you're not trapped by me. Um, I'm tired myself. But we do have 18 minutes, and I wanted to end a little early because some of you guys might actually have um, some questions. So if you have questions, you want to just kick something around with me, I'm happy to do it, to use the whole time. Yes, sir. Two, two, two questions. I'll make it fast. Um, I feel about the atheists like Paul felt about the uh, good guys and teachers. Uh, when you have voices like Hitchin, Harris, I want to say to them, go all the way. You really believe there's nothing at the end of the book that you need a book about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Right. Did y'all hear that in the back? So the first, yeah. So the first question was, um, thank you. It was the best presentation I've ever heard at Harvard, <laughs> and um, and really, really. I think, I mean, that's all I heard. Um, I heard that, and everything else is annoying. Now, the first question was, um, was uh, what was the first question? <laughs> See, I went, I went for the joke, and I, it always ruins me. I went for the. It's the question about the appropriate response. Oh, yeah, appropriate response to Asa. And you said, going all nihilism on him. Now, I will say this. There is an appropriate way to, to, to play not the nihilism card. I played it in church on Sunday, okay? Um, so I'll, one of the slides that I didn't show you, I was kind of, I'm working on this idea about um, how our moral vision and our emotions um, and our metaphysics, I have this triangle, I should just show it to you. Um, 
And so, like, this guy's really going to keep talking. Yeah, that's true. Okay, but it shows you the picture I made. I made it. So, <laughs> show it. You know, I'm up there doing my little shape selection and, you know. But, but one, of the, one of the things, this is another thing I use when, I, when I'm diagnosing conversations is, is the degree to which that, that we're not having all of these things, like, coordinated. That going back to post-Christianity, it's, we're not anti-Christian, okay? We're post-Christian. And one of the things we've inherited from the Christian tradition is a moral, the moral vision, okay? Um, love wins, right? Right? I mean, that's the moral vision of the modern world, love wins. And if you want to read a really good book on this, I put Tom Holland's Dominion on your radar screen, where, where, where Tom Holland argues that this... You know, this love theme goes all the way from the early Christian tradition to, to now. I'm going to get to nihilism in a minute. Um, and, like, for example, like, if, let's say we all go to a funeral. Okay, we all go to a funeral. And we're there, and nobody's there, you know? And somebody gets up, and they go, well, I didn't know this guy, but I know these two things. He never loved anyone, <laughs> and nobody ever loved him. And most of us, even a godless person, would say that is a failed life, right? That we have this Christian sensibility in us that love is the measure of a life well lived. It goes back to the Corona commercial. Even Corona is preaching Christianity at me, you know? Like, you're a lover. I am a lover. Like, where do we get that idea, you know? Um, And so there's this moral vision of love. But then we also have these emotions, and so the emotions I was talking about with this person, he was a, a member of my church, was um, the, the disappointment that we're constantly experiencing. Like, does it seem like history is getting any better? This is the hope sickness thing, right, getting any better. And he's like, how, you know, like, how do you, is it pie in the sky? Like, you know. And I said, well, why, I said, why are you disappointed? You know, like, well, I don't know. <laughs> I said, disappointment is a Christian emotion, you know, like, Disappointment is a Christian emotion because we believe that teleological imagination, right? History is, it should be going somewhere. And we're at the kingdom of God, and it's not. Because if we're Sisyphus, why, why, why do you think history would be getting better? Like, why isn't just as, lo- I'm sort of play the nihilism card. Why isn't it just as logical and plausible that life get, like, gets worse and worse? Why shouldn't? If the world is run by an evolutionary Darwinian logic that, that the powerful don't win all the Like, in fact, that's probably the most logical outcome, right? The strong will dominate the weak. Um, so why are you disappointed when it doesn't work out? And the reason why we're disappointed is because we have Christian emotions. Like, you are, you've been taught to be hopeful. You were not taught by the Greco-Roman ethic that the Christians displaced. You were not taught to be a, a stoic, to be resigned. You are taught to love and to be hopeful. But the only way that is sustainable, okay, is if you kind of believe that, if you believe in, like, resurrection. And so, so I was playing, and so the way I said, so, so he's like, but that's one of the things I have trouble with, like, resurrection, resurrection. And I said, here's, the way I, here's why I simplify it. I said, it's basically a simple thing in my estimation. Either the universe is a closed system heading toward the eventual heat death of the universe, right? The law of, the law of, the second law of thermodynamics is the 
the great power of the world. Everything is tending toward decay and dissolution. So you better just resign yourself or at least enjoy yourself. Those are your two choices, right? Or the universe is an open system. That's what resurrection, right? Eccentricity. It's an open system. And we have this possibility of hope. Now, then the question is, but I, he goes, right, I can't make myself believe in something I can't. And, that, and so the move that I would often make with people like that is don't think of, and I also use this for the problem of evil with students, um, is don't, don't make metaphysics a list of beliefs that you have to believe in, right? Fictitious beliefs like believing in the Easter Bunny. I said metaphysics create arenas of moral action, okay? Like what kind of world are you moving in, right? And if you, in resurrection, creates an arena of moral action where hope and love are the, the right, that fits. If it's a closed system, then hope and love is just suicidal, right? Love is suicidal and hope is wishful thinking. And so I said to him, my hunch is, though, that you love your children, right? So I'm not saying believe it. I'm gonna, my, my hope is that you, so I'm bringing his attention that he loves, and you also are hopeful, or at least want, in the words of Dr. King, the moral arc of the universe to bend toward justice. Slow, but it does bend. Like, you want to believe that, because that's what sustains your justice work through the lifespan, you, right? Your moral vision and your emotions, I, I lean into those to try to bring, well, then what metaphysics makes all of that knit together? Now, I'm not saying that's a good answer for him, but I, but I pushed him, I said, you're not living like a nihilist. You're not loving like a nihilist. So I, I play the nihilism. Um, and yet you don't believe the things that sustain your morals or your emotions. So stop loving <laughs> and stop being hopeful. Um, or act as if it's an open system. Right? Practice a, a, a metaphysics of resurrection. That it's an open system, that there is surprise. That's Easter, right? Like, we didn't see that coming, you know? And now, now there's like this crack in the egg. Something broke in, and we live in the wake of that open metaphysics. Um, and so that's one of the ways I might talk about that with him. And so he goes, so you just kind of act as if, as if. And I go, yeah, I do, you know? I act as if. That's true. Because that's, that's a more... Um, that creates an arena of moral action that fits my life, my emotions, my beliefs about justice, you know. Um, so that's kind of one way I talk about it. And again, I'm not saying I have like any, like he became a Christian at that moment like that. Again, I'm just increasing, I'm making him more resurrection now becomes instead of this like believing the Easter bunny, now it becomes like, well, I have to have a view of the cosmos that fits my lived experience. And that makes Christianity a little hot for him that he could maybe step into it, at least for a season. Another question or comments? Yes, sir. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you deal with that? 
You know, I, I, I'll, to be truthful, I haven't spent a lot of time with the spouse. Um, it's typically the spouse says, go talk to Richard, and I go talk to the spouse. It's typically a husband, you know. And so he's being faithful to her sitting in the church, but he's like, and so at some point that gets intolerable in the relationship or he can't maintain that or whatever. And so I'm often, so typically I haven't done couples counseling with them yet. Um, but I mean, obviously, you're, you know, your good pastoral skills are just kind of listening. You know, you're not going to, and sometimes I do, do feel like I, I can get impatient. Um, and and I, would, I would confess that. So I went through a 20-year season of deconstruction, okay? But now I'm like doing a talk like this. And so I can get impatient with a spouse. I took 20 years, you know? I'm like, we need to get this over, you know? I'm going to have coffee once, and somehow I'm like, okay, I talked to Richard, you know? So, so I, I see it as a long, pro, a long process of, of keeping... So there's got to be a kind of a, a persistence there where we keep pointing them. Um, but what I do try is some of the stuff I was talking about here. So I kind of pay attention to, to where they're not moving forward, and then I draw their attention. I don't try to rebut that. I just leave it alone. Um, and because you guys know from, like, Freudian psychoanalysis. Oh, you're like, no, I don't. But from Freudian, Freudian psychoanalysis, if you kind of engage with that, you just give it more energy. You know, and you're like, you're talking about my ch- child, right? Like, if you engage that directly... You're going to get resistance. But if you can turn the attention somewhere else. So with that father, he's like, I can't believe in the resurrection. But I'm like, but you love. He's like, yeah, I love. And I was like, well, why not be selfish? You know, like, why, why do you, like, where would you get this from? And, and what's going to be a way of thinking about reality to sustain that love and not, you know. Um, and, and so I just turn his attention to something else. And, his, and, and so just patient kind of a patient attention to that. There's no magic bullet, which is why I, I wanted to frame this as not as evangelism as apologetics, but we're just increasing plausibility structures. You, you, your win in that conversation is, I had a conversation with a Christian, and they're not crazy. <laughs> like, sometimes it's the first win. You know, they're just like, they didn't, like, you know, like, hit me with some weird, you know, trick. Like, Jesus was liar, Lord, or what was the other one? Lunatic, Lunatic you know, like, like, you know, they see that coming. And, and, and so, so, uh, so I do, I do prize privilege surprise with, with my sons even is, is that um, if, if, you know, you know, young people, like when they see the talk coming, you can see it in their body posture. Like, okay, here it comes. And they're just like, all right, just let me, you know. Um, that said, I, I have, the way I describe it with my children is dad's, dad's laying a mark down. That's how I describe it to my sons. I'm like, I'm about to give you a lecture. <laughs> and here's the thing. You can blow me off. You can make your own choices. But I'm going to put a mark right down right here just so you know what I think and what I care about. And you can, you know, make that a fork in the road. But, but, um, but here's my mark, you know, about what I, and I, I've done that, you know. They're like, okay, here's dad laying down a mark. Um, and so, um, and, and I've done that with him about faith, you know, like with my son, Aiden, he does, deals with a lot of self-esteem and anxiety, you know, so I talk about this idea of mattering, I was like, buddy, you know, you're going to be in this, you're going to spend your life trying to like yourself, or, right, you know, you can receive your identity as a child of God, and, and I know that can be hard, but um, I just want to kind of keep putting that in front of you, you know, when you're dealing with that, um, and I know you guys do that too with your kids, just like, I'm going to say my piece. Um, I try to be gentle with it, though. It's not a rant. It's just like, I just tell you what I, what I think, you know. Um, 
Other questions? We got yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think going back to that earlier slide I said about a sacramental ontology is that things like art and mystery are cards we don't, haven't traditionally played, but they can be really powerful. Sometimes the trouble, though, is Christian art itself can be a mixed bag, um, which is why, like, my son is not attracted to Mardell. <laughs> but he is attracted to a Catholic cathedral, okay? So, so we have to be careful about what kind of art we're talking about. Some Christian art can be propaganda. It could be kitschy. Um, but when we're counting real art, um, so like, I, for example, with the Fuller students, um, one of the things I had them do is I had them watch um, Terrence Malick's uh, The Tree of Life. And I think it's one of the most Christian movies I've ever seen. Um, uh, they hated it, but anyway, okay, you know, so, but, but one or two people go, like, I kind of see what you're after there, but if you want a, a vision of a sacramental ontology, just watch Malik's camera. Does anybody know the Tree of Life by Terrence Malik? I mean, just, it's very boring, it's pretty artsy, but to me, it evokes the mystery, like a shot of a tree swaying in the wind, and it's like Mary Oliver's poetry, but on in a cinematography, so that, that, movie evokes mystery. Um, there's a line at the beginning of that movie. If you watch the movie, there's a, there's a little monologue that the mother says at the beginning. She, she says, the nuns taught us that there are two ways to go through life, the way of grace and the way of nature. That comes from Thomas Akempis's The Imitation of Christ. There's two paths in grace, and then she describes grace. But basically, 1 Corinthians 13, gentleness. And, but it ends with this I think, but nature is domination, control, aggression, winning. And, and that's, to me, the hermeneutic of the whole movie is how the mother embodies the way of grace and the younger brother. And then the older, the father represents the way of nature, career-oriented, driven, kind of abusive a little bit, right? He's trying to dominate from the top down. And then she says at the end of that little monologue, she says, nature um, cannot see that love is shining through all things. And if you just watch the whole movie with that vision of love is shining through all things, it's a very beautiful, and they didn't like it, but, it, but, but movies like that, I think, um, can evoke mystery um, in us. So I agree, yes. And I think mystery is a good move. I think one of the good things about Churches of Christ opening up to contemplative traditions is that we have more contemplative mystical resources to play than what we used to do. Because the only thing we used to do would be just like, like, you know, read your Bible. and But even our Bible reading has become more enchanted because that's fundamentally what Lectio Divina is. Like, and, and we used to, again, remember Harmit uh, Rose's point, the more you try to dominate the world, the more it falls silent. The more you control it, the more it goes quiet. He's arguing that's why we in these modern technological capitalist societies can't hear the world anymore. It's gone silent. It's just an it. And I think we do that with the scripture. Our whole tradition has turned the Bible into an it, you know, into like a thing to be mastered and controlled and dumped, right? But Lectio Divina is just that, that kind of mystical, contemplative listening for a thou speaks to me in this text. And so that's an enchanted way of reading scripture as well. A little bit more mysterious, but...
We've got four minutes. Anybody wants one last question? Yes. Yeah, go ahead. You want this mic? Oh, it's a little edgy? I'm going to give you the mic. I'm really hoping you say something exciting. Maybe I can just sit so everyone's not wheeling around. So um, I went to Pepperdine. I graduated in 2012. Um, oh, okay, can you hear me? Okay, graduated Pepperdine, 2012, and um, <clears throat> had been Christian since I was like eight. Um, I really needed Christianity growing up. Um, it helped me deal with a lot of hardship at home. And being at Pepperdine, I, um, I felt like I'd really come home. I was like, oh, I finally found some like really solid community of friends who have like purpose in their lives and um, we can feel joy and grief together and um, we have this shared faith. And it was like so inspiring and so beautiful and then college ended and I was a young adult and uh, then I had to create community for myself and find a church. And I, in my first two or three years out of college, went to like maybe 15 different churches, like Catholic, Episcopalian, Church of Christ, different Protestant churches. And I had a really hard time finding community, actually. Um, it's hard to say exactly why. I think there's a lot of, a lot of different reasons. Um, but I was becoming like increasingly anxious and depressed. Like my idea was, um, when I graduate here, I'm gonna go and serve the poor. So, um, sorry, <laughs> emotional. <laughs> um, and so, uh, f four years of my 20s, I worked for this community center in um, southeast San Francisco. It's like a really impoverished neighborhood. Okay, I'll try not to talk too long. I'll try oh, to get no. to the point. Um, thanks for listening. <laughs> um, and uh, I was the only white person that worked there, and uh, I never experienced like so much social isolation, actually. I didn't expect that, and I kind of felt like I'm here to be Mother Teresa, and I'm going to be the happiest I've ever been, and everyone's going to love me, and um, I'm going to be serving God. And um, it didn't feel that way, actually. Um, I started getting really anxious and depressed, um, and I felt like you know I didn't know anybody because I just moved to a new city and all this stuff, and yeah, and... And so I needed to start exploring other things. That's, that was what was going on for me. Like, I was waking up every day praying, reading my Bible. I was going to church. I was talking to old Christian friends. And I was still feeling, like, miserable. And I had no idea what to do with my, with my life. And, um, yeah, so I, you know, I, like, I kind of got into, like, meditation. I was doing a lot of hiking. Um, I, I started learning about like somatic psychotherapy, like which is like just getting into like being more embodied, like being able to like feel your toes. I mean, feel yourself breathe. Uh, this is all like mind blowing for me. And I and anyway, it, not to try to convince you that I found some other things that helped me. I mean, if I told you antidepressants worked, you'd be like, oh, antidepressants. You know, it's like she took medicine to help. You know, but I didn't. I didn't do that, I did other things, and um, I'm not ashamed of it, but I couldn't find people that, like Christians, like people in my life that could accept that anything but prayer or scripture was working. 
and I couldn't talk to anybody. All I was getting was like, yeah, but what about Jesus? Like, where's Jesus in this story? What, you're not Christian anymore? And I'm like, maybe, but I haven't integrated that. I'm I'm confused. Like, I need to talk about it. But it was always going towards the same goal of like, you know, just talk the same way, think the same way, do the same things. You don't need all that stuff. That's that's the devil. And I'm like, but I feel better. Um, and so I would have loved to to have, I still would love to have like a community. Like to, you know, I love what's happening in church. I love singing with people. I love being able to have these conversations, like stand up and talk and just be heard. But the, where it is hard is when people don't want to accept, like, accept where I am, um, you know, ex- like accept doubt. It just it always has to be like helping me, having pity on me, and I'm like, well, what if what if I have something that could be useful for you, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and can I still be in church, or do I need to be ju- judged and just feel like isolated and excluded? Mm-hmm. So anyway, I just wanted to share that story. Um, I'm doing okay. It's just a really emotional topic. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah I don't know yeah hopeful what's your name? Leandria Leandria? Leandria yeah no thank you thank you for listening to me (laughs) thank you Leandria no appreciate that Um, you know I'll just say a quick comment about that I I do think um, I think I I think in many ways the church can turn seekers into its not thou's um, and not listen, not listen, not be in relationship there, right? As an object. Remember, the more you try to control, the more it falls silent. And so we, we try to take somebody's story, their narrative, and turn it into a project that needs to be fixed. Um, and so, so an openness to see the enchantment in a story like that, in that experience. And also, I just say, you know, what the church is called to do. Like Paul doesn't say, "Here's a list of things to believe." He just names where their joy is being found. And he, and he puts the speech of God in that location. It's not forced on them. It's organic to who they are. Um, but that does take a degree of non-judgmental acceptance and relationality and befriending people. So thank you for that. That was a really special moment. <laughs>